The reading is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, starting at verse 1 and going through to chapter 8. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jothan, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, And do not let your heart be faint because of these two smouldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within sixty-five years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people, and the head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as shale or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey, when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not yet come, since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria, and they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. 
In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is high beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds, for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hope with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. Then the Lord said to me, Take a large tablet and write on it in common characters, belonging to Maha Shalal Hashbaz, and I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah, the son of Jeberachiah, to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Mehashalal Hashbaz, for before the boy knows how to cry, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. The Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Ramalia, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all of you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. Thanks be to God. Thanks very much to Jean for reading that. Rather a long passage with some strange names in it, but uh, we'll, we'll make head or tail of it by the end of this morning, God willing. Uh, please do have a Bible open with you so you can follow along with us today. And you might want to have a finger in Matthew chapter 1, because we'll be flicking over there towards the end. Just want to say thanks so much for bearing with us this morning with the slight change in restrictions. Um, we are down to 70 this week and next, and we certainly pray that it is only this week and next. We just increased our numbers to 130. 
uh, and then uh, stuff happened. So we just pray that uh, we'll be back up to more regular numbers in a couple of weeks. Thanks for your patience. Thanks to all those guys who are sitting out the back. Um, if, if you can't hear me, just give a signal and I'll talk louder. But, um, and to all those guys watching at home as well, we wish you were with us, and we pray that you will be back with us very soon. Let's pray, and then we'll get into this part of God's Word together. Our Lord and our God, we pray now that you'd grow our faith in the Lord Jesus through the work of your Word and of your Spirit today. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, who watched the Olympics? Yes, a number of us did watch the Olympics. How good was Nicola McDermott? Uh, you know, a new Aussie hero. Uh, I think, you know, like many others, I was on the edge of my seat uh, as we watched her sail over that bar at 2.02 meters to, uh, to take that, that silver medal and make a personal best and an Australian, uh, a new Australian women's record for high jump. And I think most of us probably hadn't heard of her before the Olympics. But as the event progressed, the commentators kept talking about her faith how she was a person of faith. Even one commentator said it's her powerful faith, which is very important to her. You know, I guess according to the last census in 2016, don't know how things will go this time, but that shouldn't surprise us. It told us that two out of three Australians are people of faith, actually. But it turns out that Nicola McDermott's faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, it's great to see another Aussie hero who loves Jesus and is not ashamed to say it. But what is faith? What is this faith? When the Bible says faith in Jesus, what does that actually mean? You know, we we read in verse, uh, verse 9 of chapter 7 this morning where Ahaz is told, if you are not firm in faith, you'll not be firm at all. So it seems that getting this faith thing right is quite critical. Now, we're in Isaiah chapter 7 today. This is our first heading, Faith versus Fear. And we've kind of gotten to the third segment of this first section of Isaiah that we're going through. The first section is chapters 1 to 12. The first segment was uh, chapters 1 to 5, which sort of showed the problem of Judah's sin, how they were absolutely steeped in their sin and under God's judgment. Chapter 6 was the second segment we saw last week. Uh, that the way God deals with that is by a new vision of God, uh, a new conviction of sin, a new atonement for sin, and a new, uh, a new service uh, of God by his people. And so that's going to be the solution, and Isaiah's experience will eventually become God's people's experience. So now we're moving into the third segment of this first section, which kind of lands a bit more in, uh, in history itself. So this is why we start with an actual historical event in chapter 7. And this is about 20 years on from chapter 6, when King Ahaz, the grandson of Uzziah, is king over Judah. Now Ahaz, he became king in about 735 BC. And by all accounts, he was an absolute unmitigated disaster of a king. And I'd encourage you to go and read 2 Chronicles chapter 28 to get the whole disastrous, sordid account of his story. Now, during his reign, there was a major threat from the Assyrian 
Empire. Now, in this time, the kind of major superpowers of the world were Egypt on uh, sort of the southwest and Assyria in the northeast. I've got a little map here to show you what that kind of looks like. And the Assyrian Empire was growing bigger and bigger by the day, it seemed. And all of the smaller kingdom states in the ancient Near East, they were on edge. And this is the situation in the first verses of chapter 7. Assyria is on the march. And particularly for Judah, trouble is brewing now on their northern border. Now, we understand trouble was brewing on just about every border at this time, from the Philistines on the one hand, from Egypt in the south. But particularly, the main issue is in the north. And the the reason the issue is in the north is because the kings of Syria and Israel have allied themselves against Judah and their king. And verse 6 of the passage tells us why. It says that they want to conquer Judah and set up the son of Tabil as king. Now, to explain what's going on is that Ahaz refuses to ally with them. So what they want to do is they want to get rid of him and replace him with someone who will, because they believe that instead of just two states as three kingdom states, they might be able to withstand the Assyrian onslaught. But Ahaz is going, no, thank you. I'm not going to be friends with you. Uh, And they're scared, so they're going to replace him with someone who will be friends with them and fight against the Assyrians. And actually, Syria and Israel are very serious about this. If you read in 2 Chronicles 28, which is the chapter uh, given over to Ahaz's reign, we're told that Israel killed 120,000 of Ahaz's soldiers in one day. As part of this war, one of their champions managed to kill the palace manager, the prime minister, and one of Ahaz's sons. Israel also took 200,000 Judean prisoners of war. Uh, And then they they had a a kind of touch of conscience a bit later and sent them all back. But this was a serious war on their northern border that was going on. And so these guys, Israel and Syria, not Assyria, just Syria, it's the area around the, the, the nation we call Syria today. They've swept through Judah, and now they're planning to take Jerusalem as well but they can't yet mount an attack against it. And so how does Judah and their king respond to this threat? Well, we read in verse 2. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Utter terror. They've seen what these guys are capable of. They know they're coming from Jerusalem, and they are terrified. And so what does a terrified king do? Well, he's inspecting the city's water supply in verse 3. He wants to make sure it's as well defended as possible so that they can hold out as long as possible against the inevitable siege. And this is where Isaiah finds Ahaz with a message from the Lord. Now, we've got to remember, and we're reminded in in verse 2 and again in verse 13, that Ahaz, for all his flaws and faults and all his sin, he's still of the house of David. And that should remind us of God's promises to the house of David back in 2 Samuel 7. So despite Ahaz and whatever he does, God still has made an obligated promise to fulfill his promises 
to and through the house of David. Nothing is going to stop him from fulfilling those promises one way or another through the line of King David. And this is actually why Isaiah is told to take along his son. The son has a, has a non-speaking role, but his name says it all. Shear Jashub means a remnant will return or a remnant will repent. So it's a little reminder in Isaiah's little boy that God's got the end already worked out. You can almost imagine you know, Isaiah turning up to Ahaz and Ahaz saying, Oh, good day, Isaiah, how are you going? Who's this then? Oh, this is my son, Shear Jashub. Oh, a remnant will return. Hmm. One wonders if the point wasn't lost on King Ahaz. Well, Isaiah's message to Ahaz is, is quite simple. He says, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. Verse 4. Jump down to verse 7. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. So, just relax, Ahaz. Everything's going to be okay. No one's going to attack Jerusalem. And the reason for this is simply that God's promises will stand. This is what God has said. The kings of Syria and Israel, or Ephraim, it's another name for the northern kingdom, they're like smoldering stumps. There's a bit of fire, but it's soon going to go out. In fact, in 65 years, says the Lord, in verse 8, they won't even exist as a people anymore. And of course, that happened in 722 BC at the hand of, you guessed it, the Assyrian Empire. After all, in verse 8 and 9, they are just men. Should take us back to chapter 2, verse 21. Stop trusting man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? And so this challenge remains then for Ahaz, and by extension for all the people of Judah, that we read in verse 9. Will they have faith? If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. In other words, are they prepared to take God at his word at this point? That no matter what, they will trust that God will be true to his promises. After all, this is what faith actually is. It's taking God at his word, usually despite what our own reason and our own observation and our own ideas tell us. One African church leader said, faith, to put it simply, is the conviction that God does not tell lies. Are you firm in your faith? Do you have an absolute conviction that God does not tell lies? Do you trust that God will keep the promises he's made to you in the Bible no matter what? Do you trust him no matter what things in this world make your heart shake like the trees of the forest shake before the wind? Now, I asked right at the beginning of the series, what do you fear most today? I wonder what you answered. I think, you know, since, since then, that was only five weeks ago, the whole COVID situation and its impact has significantly increased the ambient fear in our society. 
There's a general sense of fear, fear of severe illness, fear of death, fear of uh, increased government overreach, fear of restrictions, fear of vaccines for that matter. What are we doing with those fears, friends? In other words, where is our faith? Because the same challenge that the Lord gave to Ahaz is the challenge that he gives to us today. If you're not firm in your faith, you'll not be firm at all. Yes, there is scary stuff in the world. But if you're not firm in your faith, you'll not be firm at all. Well, let's see if Ahaz truly is firm in his faith. This will be our second point for today. A child is born for judgment, 7 verse 10 onwards. Because Isaiah has another message from God for Ahaz. And I think the message, again, it shows God's grace and patience with this rat bag. Verse 11. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol, the place of the dead, or as high as heaven. You know, a a few weeks ago we watched the Disney movie Aladdin with my kids. And, you know, this sounds like the kind of thing the genie would say. Ask anything you want. Anything from down there to way up there. I'll do it, do it all. I think there's only three provisors that he thinks he can't do. Can't ask more wishes and those sorts of things. But God invites Ahaz to ask for anything he wants at all. He can have any symbolic guarantee he wants that the threat from Israel and Syria will come to nothing that God's promises will stand. What would, what would you have asked? You know, it's amazing. As, as we go on in the Bible, and, we, and we've seen this already prior to Isaiah, but if we fast forward to Isaiah 38, we see God is capable of some incredible signs. In the time of Hezekiah, God gives Hezekiah a sign where he makes a shadow on a sundial that was incidentally built by Ahaz, he makes the shadow reverse uh, by 10 increments. (laughs) I wonder what that would do for your faith in God if you saw a shadow move backwards on a sundial. Ask for a sign, Ahaz, anything you want to strengthen your faith, because I know you haven't got any. Anything to help you trust me. What does Ahaz do? (laughs) Well, he actually quotes the Bible back at Isaiah. He says in verse 12, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord my God to the test. Sounds awfully uh, awfully pious, doesn't it? That's from uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, in case you're wondering. It's exact same words that Jesus quotes to the devil in Matthew 4. But Ahaz is no Jesus. And he has a huge warning that a good Bible knowledge does not necessarily mean a living faith. And so here he actually proves himself to be a complete unbeliever. Only hiding behind religious pretense. I'm going to say this again. You've got to, you've got to read 2 Chronicles 28 to understand Ahaz. Uh, if you're using the study notes, uh, it's part of the, the, the Bible studies for this week to do that. But we're told there that this king actually made offerings to any and every false god imaginable. 
he saw a nation with a military victory, he said, oh, I'll have that God too, thank you. He seems to, he seems to come through for them. Maybe he'll come through for me. He did this even to the point of sacrificing his own sons as human sacrifices to one of these false gods. Ahaz, we're told, shut the doors of the temple and dismantled the temple facilities and even gave some of the temple's treasures and furnishings as a tribute to Assyria to buy them off, essentially. And I wonder if this is actually what's behind Ahaz's self-righteous response to the Lord's very gracious offer. Ahaz believed his best bet to be safe from Israel and Syria was to make an agreement with their enemy, Tiglath-Pileser III, the king of the mighty Assyrian Empire. So, no, no thank you, Isaiah. I, I won't trouble the Lord with signs just for little old me. Well, meanwhile, he's got what he thinks is an ace in his pocket. Basically, he's so faithless that he believes his ideas and plans are better than the Lord's promises. And of course, before we point the finger at Ahaz, I think it's worth reflecting on how often our lack of faith in the Lord and his promises is exposed by our similar overconfidence in our own ideas and plans. When you're faced with a problem, what's your first response? To talk to yourself about what you can do or to talk to God about what he can do? Now, if you were God, what would your response have been to Ahaz at this point? If you're a parent, I think I, can, I know exactly what you'd say. You'd say, sorry, you had your chance. If that's what you want, you can have it. You're not getting any sign." But we're not God. And so what comes next in verse 14, I think, comes as quite a surprise. Please follow with me from verse 14 in your Bibles. Because you've wearied the Lord God, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Now, just in case you haven't caught it already, this is not a good promise. This is a very threatening promise. Curds and honey might sound like something nice you get at an organic market. It's not a good thing here. It's, it's, it's a very meager diet. But we know from verse 14... Uh, we usually know, remember that verse actually from the New Testament Gospels... The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. We know that from the Christmas story, Matthew chapter 1, where the writers connect it clearly to the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're right. But with many promises in the Bible, this one's actually got two layers to it. There's an immediate layer, 
and a future layer. And actually, what's amazing is that both of them are equally true and in perfect harmony with one another. And these two layers pivot on the use of that word virgin. And it's worth saying something about what seems to be going on here so we understand what, what Isaiah is actually saying and, and how it fits into the rest of the story of Scripture. Because if we go to chapter 8, which we're going to unpack in a moment, Isaiah and his wife, who's the prophetess, they do have a son. And for the moment, we'll just call him Bazzi. But it turns out that Bazzi is the fulfillment of 714. That he is the promised son. The, the language, it, makes, it, it matches. So 8 verse 4, Before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. So Isaiah's son is a sign of the same things as the virgin's son. Therefore, they must be the same child. However, it's obvious that Isaiah's wife is not a virgin when she gives birth to Bazi. It's actually what it means when he says, I went into the prophetess. Now, Bible scholars and church ministers who don't believe in the virgin birth of Christ love to point out that the word Isaiah uses for virgin doesn't really mean virgin in the way that we would use it today. Uh, Someone, usually a woman with no sexual experience uh, whatsoever. And I have to say they're actually right. The word Isaiah uses is a Hebrew word, alma, which really means a young woman of marriageable age. So virginity may be implied, but not emphasized or even entirely necessary. This fits with Isaiah and his wife having a child together. And so it does raise the question, well, is the virgin birth and the connection to chapter 7 in the Gospels, is that just a New Testament invention? Were the New Testament gospel writers just looking for some kind of Old Testament credibility for their story? Did they make it up? Well, no. And the reason we know they didn't make it up is because when the Jews came to write their Greek translation of the Old Testament, some 300 years before Jesus, when they came to translate Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, they chose a Greek word, which means very specifically a virgin. It's the word parthenos which might sound a little bit like Parthenon, the temple that's still in Athens today in Greece, uh, dedicated to the virgin goddess, Athena. So even before Jesus, 300 years before Jesus, the Jews were looking forward to a virgin-born son to fulfill this promise. So no, it's not a New Testament invention. And so actually the word Isaiah uses in 7.14 is intentionally ambiguous. And it's intentionally ambiguous because it's got two fulfillments. And both fulfillments, this is is the, the harmony, they both result in God with us. That's what that name, Emmanuel, means. God with us. Both children are a sign of God with us. The difference is that one comes in judgment on faithlessness. The other comes in salvation and forgiveness of sins. And this helps to explain why no child in the Bible ever actually gets the name Emmanuel. Mary and Joseph don't call their son Emmanuel any more than Isaiah and his wife call Bazzi Emmanuel. But when we get to chapter 8, the child called Emmanuel is named, and wait for it, Maha Shalal Hashbaz. 
And you'll see at the bottom of the page, if you've got footnotes in your Bible, what Maha Shalal Hashbaz means. The spoil speeds, the prey hastens. Those people in the church family who are expecting, you might want to throw that in the hat, just saying, up to you. The spoil speeds, the prey hastens. How is that God with us? Well, it's God with his people in judgment on their faithlessness. On Ahaz and his people for refusing to trust in the Lord. And so the Lord whistles for the king of Assyria like man whistles for a dog in verse 18. And he uses him like a hired razor to shave away just about everything from Judah. The word abundance is used ironically in verse 22. There actually will be so little to go around that people will be reduced to eating the curds from the milk of their few animals and scavenging for honey wherever they can find it. And, you know, I I really wonder if there's meant to be a sarcastic overtone here because the promised land where God's people lived in God's place under God's rule and blessing was meant to be the land flowing with milk and honey. Now, here it seems that it's really hard to squeeze even a little bit of milk and honey out of this faithless land. And this theme of almost complete destruction, it's picked up again in verse 5 of chapter 8, Uh, where God's people have refused the gentle waters of Shiloh, failing to recognize the Lord's hand even in their deliverance from Israel and Syria. They're going, fantastic, the guys have turned tail and run, aren't we great? Let's rejoice, let's have a party. Uh, Shiloh, interestingly, eventually becomes the healing pool that we read about in Jerusalem in the New Testament where Jesus heals a blind man in John 9, the pool of Siloam. So instead of the gentle waters of faith in the Lord, they're going to get the mighty torrent instead. The images of the mighty river Euphrates, which is still in the Middle East today, it's one of the major rivers in Western Asia. I think it's the longest river in Western Asia. It was also a natural southern boundary of the Assyrian kingdom. And this torrent was going to flood its banks. It was going to sweep away Ahaz's enemies, first of all Syria, which it did in 732 BC. It's going to sweep away the northern kingdom of Israel, which it did in 722 BC. And 20 years later, it didn't stop. So there's no place for the self-congratulation of verse 6. The raging torrent will just, you know, it's not as though Ahaz can kind of decide where the river's going to stop. Once it floods its banks, it just goes wherever it will. And so in 701 BC, it does sweep into Judah as well, even up to the neck, verse 8. It's when Assyria swept through Judah in Hezekiah's reign until Jerusalem was just about the only city left standing. I had the privilege of visiting the British Museum in London, and there is a whole section dedicated to Assyrian artifacts. And one of the artifacts there is an ancient six-sided prism. It looks like this. Um, The picture comes up. There we go. Stone prism. It's known as Taylor's Prism. It's from the time of Isaiah, and it details the achievements of King Sennacherib of Assyria. The idea was that he was going to present this to his gods, saying, look what I've done. Just a little reminder, we're actually dealing with historical realities in Isaiah. 
And the stone prism says, I besieged and captured 46 of Hezekiah's fortified cities, along with many smaller towns taken in battle with my battering rams. I took as plunder 200,150 people, both small and great, male and female, along with a great number of animals, including horses, mules, donkeys, camels, oxen, and sheep. And as for Hezekiah, I shut him up like a caged bird in his royal city of Jerusalem. The spoil speeds, the prey hastens. Friends, this is what God with us looks like for a faithless nation. And remember, once again, this isn't just the people out there. This is God's own covenant people. But they have broken covenant with him. So God is keeping his side of the promise. He is drawing near to them, but in judgment on their sin. Now, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles now to the New Testament, to Matthew chapter 1. This is perhaps where we're more familiar with the words of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. I'll read it for us from verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And listen to this. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So in the Bible, there are two promised children called Emmanuel, God with us. Neither of them are actually named Emmanuel, but they both signify God's presence coming near. The first time, the Lord draws near in judgment on his faithless people. The prey hastens. The second time, though, he draws near for forgiveness of his people's sins. Jesus, Jesus, the name, actually means the Lord saves. And it's actually through the events that were signified by the first child that the birth of the second child eventually comes about. As God whittles away the faithlessness in his people until only a remnant remains, the remnant which shall return. And from that remnant is born a son, to Mary and Joseph. Because after Judah is severely 
disciplined and defeated and exiled because of their sin, and they return as just a shadow of themselves, they start to look for a Messiah instead of a monarch, someone who'll save them from their sins and not just save them from their enemies. And this is why there needed to be two signs. Because if there was just the immediate sign of judgment, well, that would be it for God's people. No more promises. That's, that's just the end of the story. But if the sign was only in the future, well, what's the urgency for Ahaz to have faith? But of course, the second sign is even better than the first, because where the first sign, the first child, signified God coming near in judgment, the second sign, the second child, actually was God coming near. That's why he truly was born of a virgin. Jesus was the sign and what the sign signified. God coming near in salvation. And you know, we started today with Ahaz and his people shaking in fear because of two enemy kings. And the challenge from the Lord in the, in the face of fear is to have faith in what he can do. If you're not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. 7 verse 9. And because Ahaz didn't, God drew near in judgment. And friends, the same challenge is given to us today. Whatever we're afraid of today, if you are not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. And because of where the Lord's plans and promises here in Isaiah were actually pointing to, Well, the point is that it's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is actually the remedy to all of our greatest fears. The gospel is the solution to fear, friends. So what are you most afraid of today? And look, I know there are probably stacks of things when you start thinking about it. It's a scary time to be alive. But... What would it look like for you today to apply the gospel of Jesus Christ to those fears? A few years ago, Nicola McDermott, our new Aussie national hero, uh, she was interviewed in The Guardian, and she had this to say about her faith. She says, I got to a level where I had everything I ever dreamed of, but I was still dissatisfied. I realized I'd put my identity into performance and achievement. Faith for me was realizing that I'm loved regardless of performance. That's a great way to describe faith in Jesus Christ. I am loved regardless of my performance. Do you ever fear not being good enough? Not being capable enough? Not be able to perform well enough to be loved and respected and accepted? What does the gospel say to those fears? It says the gospel cho- that, that God chose you in Jesus before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. That in love he predestined you to be adopted as a son or a daughter. That's Ephesians chapter 1. And that's, you know, that's just one example of applying faith to our fears, faith in the gospel. And, you know, let's, let's just leave aside for a moment all those other crazy things that are causing us fear, whether it's, uh, you know, COVID or vaccines or government overreach or the seeming uh, the rise of Islam in the Middle East at the moment, Islamic militantism um, in Afghanistan or 
you know, all of those other things that are going on in our world. You know, the gospel's good for those things too, but what about the fears you have about getting old? What about the fears you have about missed opportunities? What about the fears we have about making the wrong choices in life and never being able to go back? Faith in Jesus is the only remedy to those fears, friends. To know that we are secure in Christ forever, come what may. What about the fears we have for our kids? Do we have faith that what they need most of all to be secure and safe is the gospel? Faith in Jesus is the only remedy to fear. And we must learn to apply the gospel to our fears, friends. We must remind ourselves of what God has promised for those who have faith in Jesus. That God will save us forever because of him. If you're not firm in faith, you'll not be firm at all. How about we pray? Our Lord and our God, you are so great. You're so trustworthy, you're so reliable, you're so true, you're so good. Lord, forgive us for our lack of faith and for giving in to fear. Father, I pray this morning that you would grow our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ so that we can trust you, come what may, even with trembling, and know for sure that you never tell lies. Pray that we look forward to that eternity that you have already secured for us in Jesus. That we would never fear not being good enough or fear the great things in this world that are far beyond our control. But please help us to trust Jesus, the King of Kings, and our salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the music team has chosen a great song for us to finish with today. Yet not I, but Christ in me. Let's stand together and sing. <laughs>